Diplomats, scientists, politicians, lobbyists, activists, business leaders and the media descended on Glasgow in an ambitious attempt to rein in rising temperatures. It's a summit that has been billed as the last best chance of curbing global warming. The world's biggest annual climate change event, the 26th Conference of Parties, better known as COP26, is done and dusted. But what came out of it and what didn't is still making waves around the world. There's deep disappointment with environmentalists saying COP26 fell far short of the urgent action that's needed. Certainly from Pacific nations who, of course, have to deal with rising sea levels. European nations as well express uh, anger, disappointment, sense of betrayal. Any country that comes up with a, a net zero projection for 2060, 2070, you've got to be kidding me. It's too late. But behind the disappointment has been a glimmer of hope for our oceans. For the first time, they have been formally included in UN climate change negotiation processes. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail, what does that mean? And why are oceans critical to climate change? They've taken about 93% of the heat in the atmosphere, and they have absorbed about 30% of the carbon dioxide. I grew up on the water. I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and the oceans have always, to me, been something that's a, a part of our lives. Dr. Sarah Seabrook is a microbial ecologist. Basically, she looks at the effects of interactions on a super small scale, particularly in the ocean. She moved to Aotearoa two years ago and has been doing work with the University of Auckland and Niwa. When I was about to head to university, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened. The Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded and collapsed, causing nearly 200,000 litres of oil a day to seep into the ocean off the Louisiana coast. Eleven men were killed in the explosions that sank one of the most sophisticated drilling rigs in the world. That oil was washing up on the beaches. We, we couldn't see the oil rigs. We couldn't see any of this from the shoreline. But we saw the impact of it and... That really kind of stuck with me throughout my studies and, and, and throughout the research I've, I've been doing to date because it is a very poignant reminder that while many things in the ocean are out of sight, they are not out of our lives. Everything is so interconnected and you can't talk about the climate crisis without talking about the ocean. When we think about natural resources that we have that mitigate climate change. We often think of trees, right? Um, mm -hmm. But how does the ocean regulate the Earth's temperature? Yeah, so coastal ecosystems can actually trap five times more carbon than a tropical rainforest. Um, so as you say, when we think about climate mitigation, we often think about trees. And trees are super cool, but the oceans are massive. They're 70% of our world. And they have, for as long as time, been trapping heat and trapping carbon. So they've taken about 93% of the heat in the atmosphere, and they have absorbed about 30% of the carbon dioxide, so the uh, greenhouse gas that we're most concerned about for climate change. But while the oceans have been able to pay us this great service of absorbing this excess heat and absorbing this excess carbon, they're also bearing the brunt of a lot of 
the climate change impacts. So this heat that they're taking in and this carbon that they're absorbing is leading to really detrimental impacts on ocean chemistry, on life that lives in the ocean and on the people that depend on the ocean. What are some of the impacts? From the warming itself, you uh, deoxygenation, so you have the loss of oxygen in the ocean, and that's because warm water can hold less oxygen, and life in the ocean really needs oxygen. You also have deoxygenation from runoff from land, so eutrophication, fertilizers, things like that that are used in agriculture, for example, that's really because of deoxygenation. Warming can also cause sea level rise. So while we hear a lot about sea level rise uh, from ice melting, it's also caused by warmer water molecules expand, basically. And that's one of the one of the causes for sea level rise. It's hard sometimes to, I think, conceptualize the scale at which this is occurring. Uh, I remember when I first got Back from a, my first trip to, down to Antarctica, my my family who who are a little unsure about climate change themselves, they they asked me, "Is it true that the ice is melting?" Because they had seen that in the news and they'd seen in these other areas, but they don't see that themselves, you know. Mm. And and uh, and it is true. You can go down there and, and you can see these huge shifts that are happening. We see it with. Uh, the Fox Glacier, for example, on the South Island, how much it's retreated. Scientists say it could take hundreds of years to reverse damage to the Fox and Franz Joseph glaciers brought on by climate change. The West Coast attractions have retreated rapidly over the past five years. The tour operators can no longer take people through on foot. In addition to sea level rise, you also have ocean circulation. So... The ocean is 3D, right? You can look out at it and and, and see that the surface, but below it, it goes down to such great depths, depths that are greater than the height of Mount Everest. Mm. And the water is moving in that three-dimensional area. So it's moving across, it's moving down, and it's moving back. When water is warming, it gets less dense. What that means is that it comes to the surface instead of sinking. And it's really important for water to sink. That's one of the ways that a lot of our ocean currents are formed. There's this big global ocean current called the global conveyor belt, and it moves around the world. So if you put one molecule in, it'll take a thousand years for it to make its way all the way around. And it starts in the North Atlantic. Mm. This current is why Maine gets more snow than Scotland. It controls the weather on land. So when we're thinking about ocean currents, it's not just a problem for the oceans. It's, it's, it's a problem for the weather that we get on land, for the intensity of storms, for how warm it is, for how cold it is. And all of this is, is being threatened. As I mentioned, the oceans have taken up uh, 30% of the carbon dioxide that has been emitted into the atmosphere. And this has changed the chemistry of the ocean. So again, if you think about how massive the ocean is, it's really crazy that we've been able to change the chemistry of the entire ocean. Uh, but that's happened because when that carbon dioxide goes into the ocean, it makes carbonic acid. And as many of us can probably understand, Acidic things are difficult for life to deal with. Levels of acidity have already risen by 26% since pre-industrial times. The consequence of rising acidity is a decline in calcium carbonate, which is necessary for shellfish, corals and other organisms to form their structures. Power, oysters, mussels, it's also 
cause problems in the way that animals communicate. So a lot of animals in the ocean, they communicate with chemical signaling. Uh, it's how they will avoid predators and it's how they will communicate with each other. But while all of this has been known for quite some time, it's only very recently that oceans have been considered in climate change policy. It started in about 2015 when the Paris Agreement was developed mm, that's from very COP21. Recent. Yeah, it was really, really recent. And even then, it, it, it was very subtle. So in, in the Paris Agreement, they invited these nationally determined contributions from, from government. So what are governments basically concerned about? What, what are the priorities? What are they trying to do to, to mitigate the climate crises? And 70% of those in, included ocean or marine issues. Uh, this was built upon further in 2019. So there's a special report on the ocean and cryosphere. And mm -hmm. in this special report, they really delved in to a detail that had never happened before on what the ocean was facing. It was really scary for a lot of people, I think. For the first time, the UN has done a comprehensive audit of our oceans and sub-zero climates, revealing more major concerns for our planet. They warn sea levels could rise more than a metre by next century if carbon emissions aren't cut. After this special report, from the UN climate panel, the COP that happened that year, so COP25, it was deemed the blue COP, the Chilean presidency deemed it the blue COP, and you saw these special panels coming together talking about the ocean. And it was really great that COP26, despite all of the disappointments that were had at COP26, did in its official decision document, recognize the importance of the ocean, ask for an annual dialogue, ocean and climate change dialogue, and made the ocean a formal part of the climate negotiation process. Why has it taken us so long to recognize oceans as such an important part of the climate crises? I think a lot of it really has to do with it being really easy to forget about something that isn't right there in your face screaming at you. You know, trees are all around us when we're on land. The the issues that we deal with in the terrestrial realm, they are a lot easier to understand. The ocean has always kind of had this alien-like concept about it. And, and, and it is this, this world that is in many ways inhospitable to us as humans, right? We, we need special equipment to explore it. We are in many ways trying to build walls to hold the ocean back, but the ocean is this really massive, powerful thing. And despite that, the fact that it did take so long for us to really start considering the ocean as a, as a part of climate policy, it was inevitable. Why is it important? You know, what does it mean, the fact that oceans are finally formally included in UN climate negotiation processes? It means that we can finally start having the tough conversations that we need to have. One of the commitments that was made at COP26 was the pledging by many countries and governments to protect 30% of their oceans by 2030. And this is something that is really, really important. You saw leaders of Colombia, Costa Rica, Ecuador, and Panama coming together to launch a new marine protected area. What the science is showing us is that if we protect these areas of ocean and let, let that area 
go back to doing what it does best. It will regenerate. You will see life come back. You'll see diversity come back. And by protecting that area, then the areas around it become healthier. And that means that the areas around it that we can fish from, that we can uh, have tourism in, that we can interact with are healthier. They can provide more fish. They can provide more economic benefit. And I'm hoping that New Zealand, uh, where we have such a huge exclusive economic zone, it's 14 times larger than our land area. Yeah. yeah, 80% of the plant and animal species of Aotearoa New Zealand are in the marine environment. 44% of those are not found anywhere else in the world. That's amazing. And if we were able to meet that commitment of protecting 30% of our oceans by 2030, that would be a huge accomplishment. Where are we at with that in New Zealand? I think it's less than 1% overall of, really? of the ex- exclusive economic zone. It's better in the territorial seas. I, I think 7% is protected, um, but we have a long way to go. And marine protected areas are being considered right now by the government, actually. So there's been different classifications that New Zealand has had, uh, marine reserves, things like that. They're now in the middle of discussions about uh, how to bring in this this term marine protected area, how, how to use that in our oceans. And that's a really important discussion. It's something people could Uh, contribute their voices to, I think, contribute their support to, and hopefully see that become a bigger part of uh, ocean climate policy in New Zealand. The Pacific's been pushing for this for the last two or three cops. It's about time. It's a no-brainer. And the ocean produces about, some say, 30, 40% of the oxygen we breathe. And yet we're destroying the ocean we rely on. That's Kozi Latu, the head of the Secretariat of the Pacific Regional Environment Programme. His organisation represents 21 Pacific nations and five developed countries, including New Zealand. The oceans is the provider of so many different ecosystem services, name it, everything, food, ecotourism, you know, uh, economic activity, you know, medicinal purposes, Almost every aspect of our, at least for the Pacific anyway, you can link it to some use of the oceans. You know, whether it's seagrass, whether it's coral reefs, whether it's the marine species, whether it's, you know, I mean, everything. But at the moment, the ocean is not a very healthy ocean. What what specifically do you want to see happen in, in order to protect the oceans, especially now that... I guess oceans has been elevated in a sense by the UN. Well, the problem is that that uh, the ocean is a sink, and it absorbs about forty percent of all the uh, CO two. So until we make a shift in terms of carbon dioxide emissions that are being absorbed into the ocean, uh, there's not much we can do. You know, we can only undertake mitigation measures, but we've got Got to stop it at the source, and the source is emissions. So it really uh, does it can, come back down to just fossil fuels, doesn't it? That is the main thing. It, that's the main source. That's the main problem. Almost every issue that has got to do with climate change, you have to ask the question, what's the source? It's emissions. That's what it is. That's, that's why the sea is acidic because it's becoming more acidic because it's absorbing more CO2 than it can take. 
And that's the thing. We know we know very well we depend on it. We know very well we've got to protect it. Yet we, we do the opposite. You know, it's just crazy. Negotiations in Glasgow went on beyond the deadline as draft after draft came closer to producing a global agreement to restrict greenhouse gases. India and China were able to change the wording in the agreement from phase out unabated coal to phase down. The reality of fossil fuels and their indisputable contribution got laid bare by China and India. You know what? I, I don't know what facing down means. <laughs> what we want is elimination, total elimination, yeah? Facing out, not facing down. So was there any kind of standard? Did they give any kind of standard in terms of this is what phasing down looks like? You need to... No. F- no. No percentage or anything no. like that? No, no. And I think the COP presidency had no choice but to accept that language in order to get an agreement. So it's really, really disappointing. I like what the COP president said. You know, 1.5 uh, is you know, really very bad news. Two degrees is a death sentence. Of course it matters to them, and there was lots of emotion there. Um, and in terms of uh, you know, China and India, I mean, you know, they will, on this particular issue, have to explain themselves to the developing countries. Those countries, they don't care. They've got to be serious. They've got to really raise their level of ambitions. You know, I saw some commitments being made, a net zero growth by the year 2050. And yet there were countries that were talking about 2060, 2070. You've got to be kidding. It's too late. Places like China, Saudi Arabia, Brazil and Russia have the 2060 goal, with India pledging to reach net zero by 2070. New Zealand, like a lot of other countries, has a 2050 target. So what else came out of the COP26 Glasgow Pact? Well, despite the last-minute change by India and China, this is the first time an agreement explicitly mentions fossil fuels and looks at reducing them. Leaders from more than 100 countries, with about 85% of the world's forests, promised to stop deforestation by 2030. There were also promises to cut 30% of methane emissions in nine years' time, but big emitters China, Russia and India weren't a part of that. China did announce with the US it would work together on the issue of climate change. The two rival countries coming together was a surprise to many. In terms of funding for Pacific nations, well, that was also a disappointment. The global north has caused a lot of the climate impacts that we're dealing with, and the global south is bearing the brunt of that, particularly the developing nations. So the most vulnerable people are the ones on the front lines. The people who did not cause climate change are the ones who are being most impacted by it. There was a request for countries to come together with pledges on how they will finance these solutions to the climate crises. They were supposed to come to COP26 uh, having been able to pledge $100 billion to support developing nations in combating the climate crises. The New Zealand government did go to COP26, having already committed $1.3 billion to helping developing nations, with a confirmed 50% of that going to the Pacific. But as for the $100 billion pledge by the big countries... And they didn't meet that goal, but... In the decision text of the Glasgow Climate Pact of the end of COP26, uh, it was requested that in a year time, 
countries come together again and they and they have concrete pledges for how we're going to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal, for how we're going to help support uh, developing nations who are bearing the brunt of the climate crises, for the most vulnerable people in the world who need support, how we're going to come together for a unionized uh, consensus on a path forward. And I am optimistic that we can get there if we fight hard enough this next year if we stay committed if we stay strong if we keep a little bit of optimism in us and recognize that it's not something that we can put to the side anymore it's it's not something that can wait it's something that has to happen now it's something that will determine whether humans are able to continue living on this planet or not That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Adrian Holle engineered this episode, Alexa Russell produced it, and thanks to Dr. Sarah Seabrook and Kozi Latu. Matewa. <laughs>